Now, that was good stuff. That was good stuff. Why? Because it's true. It's good when it's true. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I, when I listen to that, I just uh, I think about what it's going to be like to actually be in his physical presence. Now, he's here among us where two or more are gathered. He is there. He is here in our midst today. That's a promise he gave us. But I want to see him. I don't know if I'll be able to stand, if I'll fall, what that will be like. But uh, that day is soon coming. And uh, I don't know when it'll come for me, but uh, I can't wait to, to live as Christ, to die as gain. All right, you ready? We're going to roll. We're going through Luke chapter 9. Last week, we looked at a couple of different descents by first Moses, a prefiguring of Jesus, who descended the mountain. And what did he find in the valley? What he found in the valley was very simply a lack of faith and a certain permissiveness. Uh, uh, They were obviously worshiping a golden calf. And uh, Moses' response to that was shattering the Ten Commandments, shattering. In fact, they had already broken a commandment that they hadn't even heard of yet. Shouldn't create an image in my likeness, God would have said in the Decalogue, part of those Ten Commandments, and here they were already fashioning a golden calf. Now, what's fascinating is flash forward some 12 to 1,500 years later, depending on how you would view that timeline. Uh, Scholars are a little bit unsure exactly. But with, between 12 and 1,500 years later, Jesus, again, descending, and he finds the same kind of perversity, the same kind of uh, lack of faith there. And uh, his response, frustrated, but come a few weeks later, what was going to happen? He was going to descend that mountain, but rather than shattering the Ten Commandments, his own body was going to be shattered. I want you to think about that. So that rather than 3,000 people dying... 3,000 people would be able to live because he would take the punishment for them. That's what we looked at last week. Were you moved by that? Were were you amazed that that's in your Bible? And putting that together is profound, and I hope you were moved last week. So we're going to press on here, and uh, with that as a backdrop, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 44. Okay, you ready? I'm going to say the same thing Jesus said. Let these words sink into your ears. That's how we're going to start in verse 44. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they did not understand this statement. Not only did they not understand it, the Bible goes on to say, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the statement. Now, again, the question would be, well, why was it concealed? I mean, it's one thing not to understand, but it's another thing to have the appearance that God has actually intervened and concealed it from their minds for their ability to understand it. And I've just got to tell you, I'll give you another reason. I've given you a couple, but I'm going to give you another reason. It's been in my own experience. When I've had a mountaintop experience, God has spoken things to me at various points, and I'm not afraid to say that. No, I've never heard an audible voice. Maybe it was reading the Word. Maybe it was in prayer. I just got the strong. People all consistently ask, what is it like to hear from God? I just don't know that that can exist. It's a strong inward confidence that God has said something. It's unique. It's different than just your normal get up, you know, kind of day part of the world that you live in where you just kind of have your own thoughts. It's a thought outside your own brain that invades your thinking and you know it has the telltale sign 
of God on it. So he puts it in, but most of the time when that occurs, and maybe it's occurred in, uh, maybe it's occurred in a sermon sometime that you go, I, didn't, I have no idea what he was talking about. But you, you took it into your ears. It went into your brain. It went into your file, but you couldn't perceive it yet. Has anybody had that experience? And then two years or five years or ten years later, all of a sudden, a bunch of things began to connect in your mind and you remember what was spoken, what was taught, what maybe a mountaintop experience, something, and then it explodes in your, in your mind and that's what's going to happen here. It's not that they were never going to perceive it, it's just that they were not in a position to even comprehend it at this point. It was concealed from them, but I guarantee you, remember Jesus said, it's better that I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've been talking to you about this last three and a half years that you had no comprehension of. Now, do you think that was more exciting once it was they understood it, even though it had been filed in their brain without, without understanding, or less exciting? I've got to tell you, when the Lord has shown me certain things, and yet they're very opaque, kind of foggy, I don't really understand what's going on, and then they're fulfilled at some point in the future. Can I just say, there's? I would say there are very few things in my entire life that are more exciting than the fulfillment of something that originally I didn't even fully comprehend. I think that's probably the case here. Had he not talked to them about this at this point, even though, remember, he didn't say let it sink into your mind. Let it sink into your ears. Sometimes you're going to come, you're going to hear a message, and you're going to go, well, I really didn't get all that. That's okay. A lot of times I don't get all the things I talk about. But uh, you're just going to walk away a little bit incredulous, a little bit. I didn't quite capture that. I got a little piece of that, a little part of that. But you had open ears, and then at some point in the future, it starts to really make sense. And you think back about that thing that Jesus said that you really were, didn't understand. Can I just say that's a big part of following Jesus? You get things you don't quite understand but just let them sink into your ears because one day you will. You will. And it will, it just energizes your spiritual life. Okay, so now the next. Now, I've entitled this The Insanity of Jesus' Disciples. And the reason I entitled it that, because, well, we had already seen last week, remember the, uh, uh, all the tabernacles, Peter, like, I'll build a tabernacle for you and Elijah and Moses, and it'll be great. And, you know, we'll just kind of stay up here forever. I don't know what his thinking was. But let me do that. And then, of course, he was corrected immediately by this voice. This is my son, right? Listen to him. So that was insanity mistake number one. Just in chapter 9, we get four really provocative things that have happened among the disciples, massive mistakes that they've made. And again, and I told you this a couple of weeks ago, it's one of those things that really compel me that the Scripture is actually true because it the very men that are writing uh, the words in the New Testament are also the men that just fail over and over and over. It's like this self-confessional, like we didn't understand what was going on. We had no kind, most, if that has the, that has the markings of something that's authentic rather than something that's just contrived hundreds of years later is the fact that they were willingly admitting that they made some huge gaffes along the way. It's very compelling to me. The next test will be this, well, the next failure is going to be this test of greatness. Now, verse 46. Now, if you can imagine, I just, this is hilarious to me. You know, they, they've, 
The transfigurations occur. Jesus is glorified. It's just amazing. And then this is what happens, verse 46. An argument started among them to which one of them might be the greatest. Now you say, well, I would never do that. I really, I've made this mistake so many times I haven't said it. You know, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. You know, I, I haven't really said it. But my life is kind of a picture of trying to be the greatest. You know, I wanted to be the, the greatest golf professional. I wanted to be the greatest this. I, it can even sip in it here. You know, I want to be the greatest pastor. I want to be the greatest preacher. I want to be the greatest teacher. I just want to, you know, there's something driving. I want to be the biggest and the fastest and the greatest and something. There's something in us that does that. So it's natural that it would occur here. Gaff number two, I want to be the greatest. And Jesus' response, now listen to this. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, you don't have to say, I want to be the greatest. Jesus, Jesus knows what's going on in your heart, right? Took a child. Now think about this. I wish I had a child here. I would bring him right up, maybe a four or five-year-old, bring him right up here. And he took a child and stood him by his side. Now get the picture. And then he turns to the guys that were wanting to be the greatest and said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all, this one is the greatest. You want to be the greatest? This is the greatest. Now, we get a little bit more detail in Matthew's account. So I'm going to have you, if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 18. We get a little bit more expanded dialogue, as is the case with most of the Gospels. It says, at that time, verse 18, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, well, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We can go down a long list of qualities of a, of a child. It's not the negative qualities. It's the, it's the guileless qualities. It's the, it's the humility in children that Jesus is really referencing here. The ability to believe the unbelievable. Someone who's not been you know, put through the ringer and become a cynic. It's someone that's willing to believe things. When, when God says them, he just believes them, even though it doesn't make sense in his own experience. That's a, another quality I would think of. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to stumble. We're going to talk a little bit about stumbling this morning. It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned well, to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, that's <laughs> them some fighting words, Jesus. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty big deal. You cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, you, just go ahead and be better, a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Really, Jesus? That seems kind of harsh to me. What's Jesus talking about? He says, I don't want you to fight. To be the greatest. Let me tell you something. When you fight to be the greatest, can I just tell you, you're going to run over everybody else in your life. Some deep motivation, some of you, and, I, and I, I'm, this is a confessional time for me, even as a father, fighting to be the greatest sometimes took precedent over my own children and my wife and my 
relationships at various points, just the fight to be greatest. And, you know, sometimes we, you got to aspire. You got to see, this is not about not succeeding, but there's something deep in us. I'm not saying go out and try to be a failure. Don't get me wrong. That's not the point of this. But there is something deep inside me that still desires to be the greatest, you know, to be, and I, I'm, I'm a type A personality. I, I, I go for things. I want, and yet here it seems like Jesus is saying this is the kingdom of God. You know what it's like? It's like a race to the bottom. It's like a race to the bottom. You want to be great? Be the least. And what is the bottom? The bottom is not failure. The bottom is an attitude of service, an attitude that other people's lives matter more than my own. It was in our Savior, Jesus, the world. He came to save the world. He came to give his life, to lay down his life for the salvation of the world. You're you're taking on that mentality, that that way of viewing life in general, and it is so counterintuitive, isn't it? Is there anything in you that wants to race to the bottom? When we're self-consumed, and that's really what being the greatest is, you put yourself first. When you become so self-consumed, you just run over people. There was a pretty funny Seinfeld episode. Yes, I watched Seinfeld. I'm sorry. And uh, there are a lot of stuff that I would not, you know, I'm not... Anyway, I'm not standing behind Seinfeld as being some moral paradigm or anything like that. But it's pretty funny, and that was kind of my, and, and Laura and I have watched a lot of those Seinfeld episodes. There was one with this, uh, it's the figure that we never want to be, and I've talked about him before, George Costanza. He had a new girlfriend or something. Their child was having a birthday party, and he was there, and he got in a fight with a clown at the birthday party, and then thought the apartment was all on fire and everything. And so, and there was a little uh, little fire there uh, in the kitchen, and uh and rather than making sure everybody was safe, because we had women and children there for this, you know, this children's birthday party, he was like, he went crazy, and he ran over everybody, ran over the children, ran, was the first to get, let me get out of here, fire, fire. It was, it was every man's nightmare. What would I do in a crisis situation? Would I be last man out? Would I have been on 9-11, one of those guys that strapped 50 pounds to my back and ascended, you know? 80-some-odd flights of stairs. Would I have been that guy, or would I have been the other person running the other way? I don't know. Every man wants to think of himself as being that person. But George was self-consumed, always was. And as a result, he literally ran over women and children to get to the door first. To get to the door first. That's what happens when you try to be the greatest. When you, when you become so self-consumed, you're going to ask questions like this. Well, who is the greatest? See, in the kingdom, you're not even asking that question because there's only one greatest, and he's the one that went to the cross. He's the one that had his body shattered that we might live eternally as we were intended to live in the plight and the presence of our creator. That's who's the greatest. Yeah, as he lives in me, I have greatness shining out of me. It's, his, his name is Jesus, and it is the hope, truly the hope of glory. Now, verse 49. So uh, that was failure number two. Uh, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him for he who is not against you is for you. Now, let me just tell you, this is tough. 
what is the context here? I've got to tell you, it is a, it is a battle to understand, really, a fullness of what this means. Does this mean that another religion that's not against us is now we're all on, uh, on the same page? It sounds a little like universalism, meaning kind of all paths lead to God kind of thing. Uh, some would actually take this out of its full narrative and full context. Clearly, if you read the entirety of the narrative of Jesus, at times he seemed incredibly narrow, didn't he? The way is broad that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Narrow. Jesus is always narrowing, narrowing. And at the end of this chapter, it'll, it'll appear like he's just squeezing everybody out except for just a few who would be willing to pick up their cross and follow. It just seems very narrow. And yet now it seems like it's kind of broad. Well, if they're not against you, they're for you. Where's the balance in this? Is it, is it narrow? Is it, do you squeak in because of this intimate relationship with Jesus? Or is it so broad that everybody just kind of eventually everybody comes? And there's been many theologians that I think have gone greatly wayward and even into the place of heresy that essentially say Jesus came and died for the world and eventually he redeems the whole world and hell is abolished and everything else. And I just don't think that that is biblical. Let me be clear. I could never teach that. Never. Because Jesus was, in fact, narrow. Now, a couple of things that strike me in this passage, that they were casting out the demonic in his name. So let me qualify what I think is being going on here. It's like, we're the inside crew. We're the ones in the know. We're the best church in the valley. Because we do worship this way, and we meet in a theater, and we, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, we come up with all kinds of things. Let me tell you something. There are many wonderful, incredible churches here in this valley that are doing a great work among a different demographic and a different way and a different, different kind of worship songs, different kind of, different kind of preachers, different kind of... And they, they are, in many ways, casting out hell in this valley in Jesus' name. And I'm never, I'm never going to go out and tell them, you, you shouldn't be doing that anymore. And that's what they were trying to do. They had gotten so hyper-narrow that even other people that were doing things in Jesus' name. Now, do I think this includes other religions? No, I don't. I think, I think it's clear. Uh, if I were to say to try, and I was talking to one of our elders at our elders meeting, Mike Groves, was talking about just this, this week, you know, talking about this Apostles' Creed. This is kind of the foundations of what it, what, what really is the bottom line of even being able to have an intimate relationship with Jesus? Not that he was a prophet. I can't have a really dynamic relationship with Jesus if I think he was just another prophet, as Islam would say. I mean, I need to understand who he said he was. And so this Christology, the, the study of who Christ Jesus really was, is very important to me having a fluid and dynamic relationship with Jesus. For him to be able to come back and say, I, I knew you, Jeff. And others, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. To know Jesus is to know who he is. That's important. That's not what he's saying here. So it's challenging at times. You know, it just, I don't know who's in. And by the way, I don't have to be the judge. And that's what we get in their fourth gaff. They wanted to be the judge of everybody. And there were good reasons for them to want to do that. And here's our last Number four, the last gaff. They wanted to be judge, jury, and executioner. Listen to the language here. 
Verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Okay, just to try to give you a picture of what this was like, uh, some seven to 800 years prior to Jesus, about 722, the, the 10 northern tribes were finally assimilated into uh, this thing because Assyria came in and wiped them out. Isaiah had prophesied it. Hosea had prophesied it. I mean, there were many had been prophesying the, the total wipeout of these 10 northern tribes, and all that were really left were, were was the tribe of Judah and Benjamin in the south. And so you've heard of the 10 lost tribes. And what had happened some seven to 800 years before the time of Jesus is that these Assyrians had brought in mixed marriages and they had become a mixed breed of people. They had Jewish roots in some ways, but then they had other blood in there. And of course, that was not God's plan for the Jews. And it was, and there were the, there were the despised Samaritans. So to get from Galilee in the far north to get down to Jerusalem, which is where they were headed now because Jesus was going to have to go and, well, to have his, his body shattered instead of the commandments shattered so that people could live. That's why he's going there. He's preaching the gospel again. So he heads that way. And they come through Samaria and some Samaritans. And what do they do? They entered the villages of the Samaritans to make some arrangements. They needed a place to sleep. It was a long walk. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And they didn't like the Jews because the Jews didn't like them. When his disciples James and John saw this, now James and John, I mean, this is the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. They were the ones arguing about who was the greatest. They wanted to, hey, they, in fact, they pulled Jesus aside in another account and they said, uh, hey, we have one little question. Can, can James and John, can the two of us, we're brothers, right? We want to sit one on your right and one on your left when you come into your kingdom. Does that be okay? I mean, these guys, I mean, you can't, you can't suggest, you can't say that they weren't motivated. They believed. And Jesus, Jesus didn't even, he didn't really harshly criticize them when they asked for that. He said, well, if you can undergo the death that I'm about to go, you can. And, and they're like, well, yeah, fine. I don't know. You know, they still understand what he was saying. But here they are again. And so when James and John saw this, these sons of thunder, they said, Lord, this is, this is true. That's why I said the insanity of Jesus' disciples. Lord, would you like for us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Would that be okay with you? And he turned and he rebuked them. Some of the earliest manuscripts don't contain the next portion, which says you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Uh, that, that one uh, verse uh, 56 there is not in some of the earliest translations. That could have been added later. And, the, you know, we're very open. I think uh, scholars are very open about not sure about that particular passage. There's some passages in Mark that are the same. It's a very small percentage, and we're just so in your Bible they may be italicized there. Nevertheless, he rebuked them strongly. What the heck do you think's going on? What is going on in you guys' mind? Gaff number four. So you're going to be the the judge, you're going to be the jury, and you're going to be the executioner. First John chapter two. First John chapter two, verse eight. Listen to this. Do you really want to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner? On the other hand, John says, I am writing 
a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You know what the true light is? Jesus and his ways. The kingdom operates in a radically different way than the normal way you run your life. Being the greatest, being the you know inside click, boy, aren't we glad we're not like the others who are Jesus people? We got the best church, we got the best whatever, come on. Or doing it our way and not listening to him. No, the darkness is beginning to pass away and the true light is shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother would be interested in calling down fire from heaven to consume them. Can I just say, you can settle this forever. If you see anybody in the name of Jesus slaughtering people, I mean, you look at the church historically, it's, a, it's chaos at times. The church has blood on its hands, we, we should say. Now, we can argue about who's the church and who's not the church. That's okay. That's, a, that's an argument worth having. But if we look back at the history of the church, your friends, maybe it's your club or your neighbor or somebody in your family, they're aware that these things have occurred. We can't run from the atrocities that have been committed in the name of Jesus. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And the one who loves his brother abides in the light. And then we're back to this word, this stumbling word. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. Judge, jury, where did they get this idea? I think I've taught on this at various points. Where did they get this idea of calling fire down from heaven? Well, that was... 2 Kings chapter 1, if you're taking notes, 2 Kings chapter 1, Ahab has now died. One of the northern kingdom, after the split of the kingdoms, and uh, one of the northern kingdoms uh, had Ahab as their king. He died. His son uh, took the throne. He fell through the lattice work, didn't know whether he was going to die or not, and said, hey, send some messengers and say, go check out. Now, Moab was a big issue for them at this time. Moab was starting to kind of attack Israel, the northern uh, part, to attack them at various points, and they were having some problems. And he said, go check out their God and ask their God. Really? You're going to go ask the God of Ekron? The, to, no, what? You're going to go ask their God whether or not you're going to live through this? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And so he sent some messengers. And those messengers on their way to go inquire of the God of Ekron came across Elijah. And Elijah says, you go back. He says, is there no God in Israel that you have to ask the God of the Moabites, of the God of, the God of Ekron? I mean, Really? And you are going to die. And, of course, they went back and told the king and uh, Ahaziah. And, and, and he says, uh, I bet it was a guy. Did he, you know, did he have a hairy thing on and all that? And that was that Elijah the Tishbite. And he knew exactly who it was. So now he sends 50, a messenger, and then 50 troops with him. And they go up, and Elijah's sitting up on a little mound there, and they come up to him, and they say, we have a message from the king, and he calls down fire from heaven and wipes out all the 50 plus the guy. So the king finds out, and he sent another 
group of 50 and a leader. And, a, and, and what does he do? Elijah calls down fire from heaven and wipes them out, consumes them. So can you imagine the words getting back, the next 50 that are coming? How, how, how confident are they, right? I mean, this is fire coming down from heaven. So they went, and, you know, oh, don't kill us, don't kill us, don't kill us. And anyway, they got the message back and he died. So what a, what a great prophet. This is a prophet of Israel. In fact, the Messiah won't even come until Elijah must come first. It was the very last thing uh, in the entirety of the Old Testament in Malachi. Uh, Elijah's got to come first. And the spirit of Elijah is what we call down fire from heaven. It's awesome. We got all kinds of power. So when somebody, and now this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. So Jesus, can we do what Elijah did and just call down fire from heaven and wipe them out? And he rebuked them. Why did he rebuke them? Have you ever done that? Do you, you probably never have done that. Have you, have you ever judged somebody with your mouth? You may not have asked to call down fire from heaven, but have you ever done anything like that? I have. I was, I, I, I'm much better at it now. I can tell you, in college, I, was, I would be your best friend. On one night, we'd sit there and talk about, you know, Bob and Joe over here, and then maybe the next I'd be with Bob and Joe, and we'd be talking about Ted and Frank over here or whatever, and then I'd be back with Ted and Frank, we'd be talking about... I mean, I just, I was just so willy-nilly. I just, anybody who I was with, I was just willing to, I was willing to just criticize, to, to, to make judgments about people, to... It just was just part of who, it was part of my fallen nature. And guess what? Deep down, I'm like, well, I'm a Christian, you know. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, I kind of walked the aisle when I was a kid, you know. And guess what? Because I hated my brother, because I was doing that with my mouth, I hated people. Guess what I was doing? I was becoming a stumbling block. One of the most terrifying things to me in my entire life is becoming a stumbling block for somebody trying to get in, some child trying to enter the kingdom in a guileless way, and they see, oh, yeah, there's Pastor Jeff at church at the red door, but did you see the way he treated that waitress? Did you see the callous way in which he treats his children or his wife or his friends, or did you hear about or whatever? Tell me, let me tell you something, especially as you get in a little bit more prominent position, people are looking to see you get wiped out. I do not want to become a stumbling block. Just one time, a DUI on the pages of the desert sun or something, I, I take this incredibly seriously terrifies me. And I'm an imperfect person trying not to be a stumbling block. But it's not just about me. See, until you get to the place where you say it's not just about me anymore. 1 Corinthians 10, we'll start to wind this down. Let no one seek his own good, verse 24, but that of his neighbor. If you seek the good of this valley, if you have gone back into the chaos of the valley, as we talked about last week, Number one, do not become a stumbling block. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And just as I also please men, all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Now, you, in your life, whether you're aware of it or not, if you're a Jesus person in the hearing of my voice this morning, you are either a catalyst to people wanting to follow Jesus or you are a stumbling block holding people back. 
We don't want to hear that, but it's true. And until you set your interest on the things above, and the interest of the things above are one thing, the salvation of the world. That's why Jesus had his body shattered that we might become the light and lead, see the world. Give him your body, a living sacrifice, so that people can come and want to worship him. I want people to see me as imperfect as I am. And when I fail, I'm open about it. I lead a confessional kind of lifestyle. I don't just internalize it. And the more I do, and I am in communion with you. And when you see areas of my life that don't conform, then I expect to be confronted and looked at. Why? Because I don't want to be a stumbling block. Matthew 18, listen to what Jesus said. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. He goes on to say it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. It's inev- Jesus said it's inevitable. Stumbling blocks are coming. We're gonna, I'll close just telling you a couple of them. But it says it's inevitable that they come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Are you a catalyst? Do people see your life and want to know more about Jesus? Or do they see your life and they want to know less? Or it confirms all the bias that they have. Or all the misinformation about our glorious, worthy lamb who laid down his life for them. If your hand, Jesus now used clearly hyperbolic language. But listen to what he says. It's, it's with great insistence, if your hand, Matthew 18, verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. People often, that is usually not a refrigerator verse. (laughs) Be anxious for nothing but by prayer and supplication. Right next to, pluck your eyes out. You know? I mean, those are usually, you don't find those in people's refrigerators. So, in closing, what are the stumbling blocks today? Well, I think outside the church, just the endless number of books written by atheists, attacking everything, historic Christianity, everything. Uh, the, the idea of a God in their mind is just a, you know, you could just read. I've read a lot of it. And finally, at a certain point, it's just so redundant. It's so poorly reasoned. It's, it lacks logic in so many different areas. Atheism is, in fact, beginning to die out. And the more we understand scientifically, the more it yells for design, not just something emerging out of chaos. But those are stumbling blocks. They're supports for people who don't want to live under the rule and the reign of the kingdom of Jesus. Narratives in the media that just never seem to cease, that always make certainly evangelicals, but most believers just look like the scum of the earth. You can just, it seems like every movie, every sitcom, the bad guy, the unintelligent, everything are people who would be Jesus people. It's, it's in vogue to do that. Those are stumbling blocks, and that seeps into people's minds. And so we, we have a difficult battle to lift up the true and authentic Jesus in a culture like this, don't we? Or just the horrors and the atrocities that men have committed against men, and of course it always comes back the same. How does a good God, how does, a, how does a, a God allow good things 
A bad thing's to happen to good people. I really hacked that up. Let me start all over again. Strike that. Reverse it, Willy Wonka. All right, you ready? How does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? How does that happen? One of our former... One of my former region directors here at Lynx Players, who's in Texas and used to play the tour, wrote a nice devotional this week. He said, well, I've only, I, know, I only know of one time that that's ever happened, that God's allowed a bad thing to happen to a good person because there was only one good person, and he chose that 2,000 years ago to go have his body shattered for you. That's a good response. <laughs> Somebody ask you that question, well, how does a good God allow? Anyway. So what about inside the church? What are stumbling blocks inside the church? Well, hypocrites. Now, to some degree, we're all, in some ways, hypocrites. And what, by that, I'll define it. By that, I mean that I do things sometimes that are not in alignment with what I know to be true. Attitudes that I allow to fester in my mind or whatever, and I hate it, but it's just true. I aspire to be like Jesus, and then I realize that I fall short. That doesn't mean that it's, it's an excuse. It's just, it's just true. But I'm talking about really the blatant hypocrite. During the time of Jesus, the religious leaders wanting to kill him, and he said, you know, you're of your father the devil. I'm sorry. You, if you desire to kill me, you're of your father the devil because he was, he was a liar, and he was from the beginning, he's a murderer. You need to understand that. So hypocrisy. And what about one of the worst? I, I, it, it's... Because it's put a stranglehold on my life, religious legalists who just come and just, you know, they take this Bible and they just beat people up with it and beat people. Look, and this is not to suggest you shouldn't look to become more like Jesus, but religious legalism can be really brutal, even in the name of Jesus. And people are not, that is a stumbling block to many people. And then lastly, just apathy. And that's where we'll close this morning. Look, it's, it's, it's a non sequitur. It really is. One thing does not logically lead to the next thing. It's a non sequitur to say, I believe worthy is the lamb. And you'd come in and just sing. And, the, you know, and I, yes, I'm a sheep and I, and I worship the lamb. And yet you're apathetic about your spiritual life. You know, when it's convenient, when it's all, you know, it just, just that level of low grade. It's like a low grade fever. I believe, but I don't really believe. So, uh, this non sequitur, and Jesus just, again, we, it looked like he widened it. If they're not against you, they're for you, and now it just goes. Here's the last few verses, and we'll close. Verse 57, finishing Luke chapter 9 this morning. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why wouldn't he say, wonderful, come follow me? He just was trying to give him a good picture. And he said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, we're unsure. It just could have been that his father just died, or it could be that he was waiting around for an inheritance, and he's waiting for his father to die so he could get, you know, get the inheritance. And Jesus is like, You're, you've got some misplaced priorities. There's a lot of apathy I see here. 
there's an unwillingness to sacrifice maybe the future of receiving an inheritance, if that's in fact his. In either way, it was pretty tough language. And then finally, last two verses. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Seems like a very reasonable request. And Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. doesn't mean it's a forever. There are just moments in your life truly coming into a followership and really being a sheep of the glorious one. The follower of Jesus requires an abandonment of everything you consider important. That is narrow-sounding. But it's the only way that leads to life. If you're clinging to other things this morning... It's not well with your soul. Just now, does that mean you have to sell everything and follow him? You know, well, if he tells you to do that, do it. So it means you got to, you know, I don't know. What it, his, his commands to you are different than his commands to me. That's why we don't judge each other. I don't judge other churches or people. Or I try not to do that. I have to at times make decisions inside the church to make sure the sheep are well cared for. But I'm not, I'm not your judge, certainly not your jury, and I will never be your executioner. But I will tell you this, that in following Jesus, there is a glory and a profundity, a power that you can never experience without abandoning yourself. And when you do, it will be well with your soul.